first joint Big Ten Buddy Group event, hosting a book party for David Pepper. Big Ten USA is building a women-led coalition working to protect the guardrails of democracy and increase civic participation. Tonight, we welcome David Pepper, former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, who's been talking about the importance of state and local elections for years, warning about the threats to democracy in our own backyards. Most of us are just catching up to this reality. David is an artist, lawyer, politician, and author of political thrillers, both fiction and real life. It's his most recent book, Saving Democracy, that we're here to hear about tonight. David will talk about his book, then Wendy Rogovin will moderate the Q&A. So just put all your questions in the chat now. Thanks everyone for joining us and thanks especially to David for making the time to be here tonight. Thank you, Sue. It's great to be with, with you all. What a great turnout on a summer evening and uh, a lot of old friends. Uh, some of you have been helping uh, for years. I, I see um, Ann Hess's name there. She, she and, and others have been helping Ohio for a very long time. And, and it's great to have you come together. Uh, both, both Big Ten and the Buddy Group are doing such amazing things around the country for so many. So I'm honored to be with you tonight. Uh, I'll cut right to Chase because I want to have time for a good conversation. Uh, some of you, I'm looking at people like Jess Crave and others. I feel bad when I see Jess. You've heard some of this stuff before, uh, but um, I want to make sure I, I cover the basics with those who have not been on one of my calls before and then have time for Q&A. So I'm going to share a screen, uh, cover the, some basic material real quick. Uh, this is going to cover both the first and the second book and then open up to some Q&A and a good conversation. But I do want to present something that I think frames it well in a way that hopefully is helpful, uh, not just today, but going forward. So um, this, this next slide, again, this is something that, that Jess has seen and maybe some others. Uh, without going through all the details of laboratories of autocracy, the beginning of my new book, Saving Democracy, tries to really outline very quickly for people uh, that we are, we are approaching, the, we have been, I'd say, maybe I think people are catching up to us now, as Sue said, but for a long time, I think we've made a mistake in that we've greatly simplified the battle of American politics as if it's a single battle between red and blue. You know, there's a red team and a blue team, and every two years they duke it out in federal elections. And when the blue team wins, they celebrate. When the red team wins, they celebrate. And that's kind of how we've been thinking about it for a long time. And the more I've written and the more I've talked about this in meetings like this, the more I'm just convinced that that, that very simple mindset about what it is, and it's, it's, it's repeated every night on television, the red, the maps with the blue and the red, that simple, that simple narrative actually really blinds us to what's happening and makes us far more effective in battling for democracy than what otherwise could be. So I want to I want to say that they're actually the two battles. There, there's there's a there are two sides in the in the battle, and as your as your sort of uh, title states, it's not just an R versus D thing. It's bigger than that. Um, as as your sort of your moniker is, is Big Tent is, uh, but there there are two sides. They're fighting such different battles. I think we're far better off thinking about it as two different battles and understanding what the other side's battle looks like and how they fight it will make us far better at, at dealing with it than we've been dealing with it. So I, I like to start out these presentations by explaining what the two battles are. And if you've seen this before, I, I, I apologize if it's repetitive, but if you haven't, my hope is once you see the two battles, you frankly never forget the slide. 
And my hope is when people read the book in the beginning of the new book, they don't forget this because it, it's a little bit, I think, you know, of a, of a frame change that we all need to make. So what are the two battles I'm talking about? On the left side of this battle, I would throw in, you know, Democrats, independents, and even some moderate Republicans, the media have seen the battle of American politics in a certain way for about 50 years, let's say, maybe 60. Uh, and this side enters the battle with two assumptions uh, to, its, to its sense of the American political battle. One, this side assumes, and this is, as we will all talk about, I think wrongly assumes, and has assumed, although again, this is changing, that American democracy is pretty much stable. It's intact. It's, you know, we're, we're, it's sort of a, almost a patriotic mom, apple pie, based on democracy. It's just who we are. And we, we don't really, we haven't really been worried about democracy at, at its roots for some time. That's an assumption this side has brought to its battle for a long time. The second assumption this side has brought to its battle is actually, unlike the first one, a correct one. This, this side comes to the political battle confident, mostly confident, but correctly confident that it, it actually represents majoritarian viewpoints on almost every issue it cares about. And this is actually correct. Uh, the most glaring example in the current political debate is uh, abortion. Pro being pro-choice, being against abortion bans, no exceptions, is a strong majority viewpoint in Kansas, in Texas, in Ohio, across the country. Uh, but so are almost every other part of this side's agenda, be it, you know, supporting public education, being against book bans, dealing with climate change, a middle class, a middle class based economics as opposed to trickle down on and on. You know, this side, most of its views, mo common sense gun reform, you name it. These are all majority, in some cases, strong majority views. So this side, you know, enters politics with those two assumptions. Democracy is pretty much stable, and our views are popular. And so healthcare being broadly accessible, another one. Uh, so this side basically chooses as its battle, well, let's go win some elections by, by essentially running on the things we care about because we're confident people will vote for us because they agree with those things. And so this side, because it's not only just uh, you know efficient and confident democracy, but also knows that the history of our country is that our biggest achievements have come through federal legislation on all these issues. This side quickly kind of comes to, comes to a federal mindset in that battle. And that means this side quickly becomes very focused on the swing states and swing districts that give it a majority of the Senate, a majority of the House, and a majority of the Electoral College. And every two years, and especially every four years, that's this side's battle. And we've all been through this. When that side wins the swing state federal battle, especially in that fourth year, like we did in 08 or 20, we celebrate, don't we, like we've won the whole damn battle. We are literally, we can all remember when the Obamas stood, and it was an amazing moment, so it was good to celebrate, but, but we celebrate as if we've won the entire battle because we think the other side's battle is the same as ours. So if we win ours, we think, well, they must have lost theirs. And the problem is we all learn only months or a few years after these celebrations is in many, many ways, we don't feel like we're winning, even though we thought we won our battle. And that's sort of a hint and a clue. Well, the other side, if, if the other side is making gains, even when we thought we won our battle, something's wrong, isn't it?
And what's wrong is the other side's battle is actually very different. They're fighting a different battle. And I want to go back to those two assumptions. What are their assumptions in their battle? The first assumption they make, and sadly they're correct about this, is that democracy isn't just naturally intact and strong. It can be subverted in all sorts of ways and has many times in our country's history and all over the world, whether it's Russia to an extreme degree in the last 20 years or Hungary or other countries, democracy isn't naturally intact and stable. It has to be protected and it can be subverted. They're right. They're right. We've been wrong to just sort of take it for granted. Uh, not only do they know that, they're studying it for goodness sakes when they go to Hungary and when they invite Orban to Texas to celebrate him. So they're, they're not hiding that they think this, is, that they understand this. They're actually studying it. Uh, so that's their first assumption. Their second assumption, and in some ways this is even a more important assumption, although they work together, their second assumption is what? It's unlike our side, they understand that their views are deeply unpopular or at least unpopular. They know, I mean, and just they, they make it clear all the time. Um, they know that um, abortion bans across the country are unpopular. Well, how do we know they know that? When Lindsey Graham tried to bring one to the Senate after Dobbs, Mitch McConnell told him, not here, you're not bringing that thing. Um, when Rick Scott talks about cutting Social Security, Mitch McConnell tells him to stop talking. When Tommy Tuberville says the crazy things he said the last couple of days, Mitch McConnell corrects him on that. They And so I don't care if it's gun issues, a woman's right to choose, banning books, almost, you know, don't do anything about climate change as our planet warms, trickle on economics. The reason they booed Joe Biden when he brought up Social Security to the State of the Union, they didn't want him talking about something where they were so unpopular. So they understand that their viewpoint is unpopular, in many cases, toxic. And they understand, and, and because of that, they also understand that if all they do is run for office saying what they're for, they will lose. They know, Mitch McConnell knows that if, if their candidates say what Mehmet Oz said, which is that abortion comes down to a woman, her doctor, and the local political official, they know they're going to lose if they say that. They know that Kansas was going to turn out the way Kansas did if you have a straight up referendum on abortion access. So knowing that they will lose in a fair democracy on their unpopular agenda, they don't choose to side on the left's battle over election outcomes, do they? Their battle is a different one. Their battle is over democracy itself. And more specifically, their battle is how do you subvert democracy enough to lock in a minority worldview that would never survive in a real democracy? That's their battle. And again, in case that sounds, and a few times, you know, my dad, uh, Sue, Sue, you met him a, a few weeks ago. He's an old moderate Eisenhower, not Eisenhower, um, yeah, Eisenhower, Rockefeller Republican. And every once in a while, I'll say, David, are you really saying that they don't like democracy and that they're trying to subvert it? And I'll say, Dad, they went to Hungary for a reason. They're not hiding this anymore. Peter Thiel, who funded J.D. Vance's campaign in Ohio and others, literally wrote the words 10 years ago that he thinks democracy is inconsistent with freedom. So they're not subtle that their goal is not to have a robust democracy. Uh, but once we realize that their battle is over democracy itself, um, then we figure out, well, how do they run that battle if they want to do it? How, what is the best way for them to do it? And this gets to a lot of the first book and, and some of the second. 
they have figured out, and here's, here's, here are sort of key aspects of their very toxic agenda. This is their national agenda. And if they tried to run all this through, through Congress, they would, they would have problems. And, and that's why you don't see that much on this, although sometimes the not so smart ones bring all this stuff up. They figured out the beginning of the slide here that the single best institution to accomplish their goal of subverting democracy enough to run an extreme agenda through are the state houses of this country. State houses turn out to be the perfect institution to do that mission. And why is that? And some of you will, will know this, others, this will be a little refresher. One, state houses handle every single issue that we care about in politics, except for you know the military and a few other things, federal taxation, regulation, everything else that, that affects people's lives, first and foremost, comes out of state houses. The taxation, economy, healthcare, education, what's taught in schools, the quality of schools, um, energy, a woman's right to choose, gun reform or not, or lack thereof, all of it, it comes through state houses. And that means every single element of their toxic agenda can be accomplished almost through state houses. The reason Mitch McConnell told um, Lindsey Graham not to bring up abortion nationally is because he knew they could do it the way they've done it, through state houses, lickety split. But the second reason that state houses are so potent as a place to do all this is their power of democracy itself. They write the election rules of our country much more directly than does Congress. Who votes, when they vote, how they vote, how they register, how, you know, how they get purged, you name it. Do you have a month to vote, a week, a day? Do you have drop boxes or not? Do you have water at polls? That's all state houses. And with that power comes the power to shape the electorate. And if you have a minority worldview and you're worried about, you're about losing elections, the power to shape the electorate is a pretty awesome power. You can, make, you can make changes, especially in close states like Ohio or Georgia or Pennsylvania with a few, a few cynical laws. The, number se the second power they have is the power to draw district lines. And with that power, maybe even more awesome, the first power, is they can decide, do we have a representative democracy in these states or do we rig the whole thing? So that not only do the state's majorities in the state house not reflect the state itself, which is what they do everywhere. But they figured out they can create systems where the entire state, I'm sorry, every single person in their majority in that state house, almost to a person never faces accountability their entire careers. And that's what they've done. I won't go through the details for time's sake, but that's what they've done. One, they create a system that doesn't reflect the people. And we see in these states, that's what they did even in 18. Look at the one on the right where Wisconsin, Democrat, Wisconsin Democratic candidates got 9% more vote, 9% margin better than Republicans. Still, the Republican supermajority in Wisconsin was dominant in the state house. That's a system Putin would be impressed by. But number two, this is the system, this is the Ohio uh, districts over a decade. Almost not a single one of these people ever worries about their next election. It's all rigged, so they don't worry about it. And one of the things that I've really become obsessed is too strong a word, but very intense about is once you have a system where almost not a single person feels accountability whatsoever in their political power, all the incentives that we think lead to good public behavior get flipped upside down. If you never, if you're in a close district, you care about public outcomes, don't you? Because it, it, even if you don't care about it because you're a good sort of civic-minded person, Good public outcomes is how you get reelected in a closed district in a real democracy. You couldn't get away with having terrible wages or terrible schools 
or you know, hiking energy bills to pay for bailouts, you would lose. But once you're in a world where it doesn't matter what happens because that November election, you're guaranteed to get reelected. Of course, those public outcomes no longer matter either in terms of your own personal incentive system as an elected official. The second thing, though, really does start to matter much more. Private interests that are in your face in that state house, they can control your fate far more than the public in that gerrymandered district back home. And most of them don't know who you are anyway. They don't even know what the state house does. They don't think about the state house as a place that, that is a politics that, that, that concerns them. So you have this major incentive to keep certain private interests happy. And in Ohio, that's been uh, for-profit schools that turned out to be scams, energy companies that want bailouts. And so they're giving away the public's goods to private entities. The public can't stop them. The private entities reward them. It's the Brett Favre giving TANF money to volleyball courts on steroids all over the country. But the other incentive that gets truly screwed up in this world of no accountability is you have an incentive in a real democracy to be somewhat mainstream. Uh, because that's how you get reelected. You could get away with sending a 10-year-old rape victim to Indiana for abortion care. If you were in a fair district, you'd lose in a second. 5% of Ohioans at best supported that. But once you're in a world where you don't worry about the general election, then you actually have an incentive to be an extremist. Because the only way you really worry about losing is in that primary, someone says you're a rhino, someone says you're too moderate. Or in the case of the Tennessee uh, Republican Party, they say, oh, that person kept those two Justins in the state house. That was, that was being a moderate. That was being a rhino. So you have this terrible incentive to be an extremist. Now, one other incentive that really plays a role in, in these, uh, in these uh, state houses that are rigged in the way I'm talking about, once you've committed yourself to a career of having poor public results because you're giving everything away to the private, which is what these places are doing, and once you are extremist out of touch with the mainstream, which they are. Kansas is a great example of that. Of course, you have one really other strong incentive. You can never allow democracy back into your state, because if you ever did, you would surely lose the next election. You couldn't defend your extremism. You couldn't ex ex defend your indefensible public outcomes. And I go through a lot in these both books. Uh, what are bad public outcomes? Ohio had the fifth highest ranked school system in 2010. Now we're in the mid 20s because they gave all the money away to scams. Um, they couldn't defend that in a fair district, they would lose. They couldn't defend sending a 10 year old rape victim to Indiana because she couldn't get help here, they would lose. So they have to keep, it, it, whenever people think, well, are they ever gonna stop making it worse? No, they have to keep doing it because the more extreme they get, the more they need to ratchet down democracy to keep themselves in power. The two things work together. So that's a pretty bleak picture. I'll go back here, though, real quick before we get to the good, the good positive stuff. That's why state houses become the perfect institution for what they're doing, because the incentives of these places are so screwed up that if your goal is to get this agenda done, whether it's because you want to profit or whether it's because you have a right wing social agenda, it turns out that state houses not only will do it, they're incentivized to do it all. So the, the reason I'll go through, the, the reason this slide in the end is, is so, you know, uh, somber in a way is now let's play out over time. What happens if the side on the left keeps doing what it does every two years, swing states, federal years, largely not really paying attention to the other states, celebrating when it wins those swing states like it's won everything, and the side on the right keeps doing what it's doing every couple of years every state that can get power. Hey, I don't care if Biden wins Virginia, we're gonna win that state house and that governor's race the next election. 
or or wherever. Every state that can gain power, every election they can do that, gain that power. They don't care if it's a swing state. And when they win that state, they gerrymander the hell out of it. They suppress the other side. They run their extreme agenda through. And by the way, one other part that's sobering, they nationalize the whole thing through groups like ALEC. So they're always learning from each other. Now, I ask, I ask you, if these two sides keep doing what they're doing, who's going to win? They're going to win. And even when we think we're winning like in 20, if we haven't made inroads to what they're doing, they're still winning long term. And that became so clear about, about April 21, didn't it? Forget January 6th in the state houses. They were on the move to gerrymander again, suppress again. They kept their control of state houses and they kept on moving forward. As, my, as I put in my book, and, and he just poked his head at the door, my nine-year-old son knows they're going to win because he plays soccer, and he knows the team that's always on offense wins. And this, what I've described in this slide, in the presentation is, I've described a scenario where one team is always on offense, where it counts, where democracy is shaped, and the other team is essentially kind of on defense, but in many places not on defense at all, and I'll go through that in a second. So that's sort of the somber uh, matchup that we are facing. People are waking up to it, but this is why even when we think we've been winning, it feels like we're losing. So what do we have to do? And I'll go through this quick, and this gets to this, the, the heart of the second book. Well, we got to figure out that, yes, we are in a battle for democracy itself. That's our battle. If we didn't see that for 40 years because the post-civil rights era made us feel overconfident in democracy, well, let's figure it out now. We're in the same battle they're in. We're in the same battle the suffragists were in. We're in the same battle uh, John Lewis was in. We're not in some privileged moment where we don't have to keep fighting for democracy. That's never been our history. That's not the history of any country. It's not the moment we're in now. We are in a battle for democracy itself. And they are fighting it. They're fighting that battle. And they're fighting it where democracy is shaped. And we just haven't been. Once you realize that's the battle, by the way, my hope is, and this is why I, I try to not be negative, but I try to be very clear-minded about what this battle is. I think it becomes so clear what we have to do once you see this. And the second book goes through all the ways that everyone can participate. So, but I want to go through a few high principles for a second. Once you see it's a battle for democracy, I think the entire lens of it changes. Because then you realize it's about a long game. We're not in a battle over the next federal cycle, although obviously that's important. It's much bigger than that. It's much longer than that. Much of the work is, Jessica, you're on my screen, so I keep looking at you because you're doing all this work. It's bigger than even elections. It's bigger than cycles. Of course, the cycles really matter, but it's all the time. It's local. It's engagement of voters. It's using our footprint to engage people in ways that we haven't. And, and once you see that, you see that the current, you know, a frenzy with three months to go in a federal election, then shut it all down for 18 months, and then a new frenzy is a losing battle in a long game of democracy. To put it differently, do you think Steve Bannon ever stops trying to put election deniers into local elections positions? Of course not. Karl Rove, when we were all declaring the Republican Party dead in 09, was busy trying to win state houses because he knew that's what mattered in 10, and it worked. We have to have the same long game mindset. I won't go through great details on this because we all know the story. My best recent example of someone who had a long game mindset was Stacey Abrams. A few of you may know I went to law school with her, um, which means I've seen her since 1999 doing her work. If she had a short-term federal election cycle mindset, she would have quit probably in 2002. But she knew the battle for Georgia's democracy was a long game 
And one of the benefits of seeing a long game is you can see progress even in tough years. You, by registering more voters, by taking on voter suppression, by, by engaging people as she did as a candidate in 18, white voters showing up in rural Georgia voting for an African-American woman that never done that before. She knew when she said in 18, despite not winning, that progress had been made. She was saying, I have a long game mindset for Georgia and we did make progress. Most people probably thought, oh, that's just a nice speech after a loss. No, she was telling the truth. And two years later, we all saw what she meant. So we have to all have a long game in everything we do, every meeting you have, everything. If it's building to the long game, it's step forward. If somehow it's reducing from the long game by shutting down in December after election, then don't do it anymore. Everything should be with a long game mindset. A couple more and then I'll stop talking. Number two, our long game mindset, by the way, in Ohio was we won three out of four Supreme Court races in a couple of years in 18 and 20. That was a big long game win, even though Biden didn't win in 20. Uh, number two is the biggie. Once you see it's a battle for democracy itself, I hope, and I've been on enough calls with some of these red states, it's become really visceral for me. I hope we see how wrong it is that we are leaving dozens of states out of the battle because they're not meeting the magical swing state math it takes to win federal elections. And so we basically don't really do much in these places. But once you see we're in a battle for democracy itself, I hope it's clear how wrong it is that when I wrote my first book, I got emails from so many states. My book was a lot about Ohio, but they would say, my God, you just described the hell of living in Texas or Florida or Missouri, where we have no democracy left. We are leaving states without democracies. And I believe without going into all the details, that's not, we're not even following the constitution when we let that happen. There's a guarantee that every state should have basically democratic governance. We're not even meeting that. But beyond that sort of academic point, it also means we're not winning in places we could be winning because we're not even trying. Kansas being a great example, showing the world these states are so much more extreme in their governance than the people themselves. But it also means beyond where we win or lose, when we're not making an argument in these states, we're allowing extremism to explode. And that's what's happening. You know, Obama won Indiana. Obama won Iowa. Clinton won Missouri. You wouldn't know it. They're in a downward spiral of extremism. Look what uh, the governor of Iowa did just yesterday. Way out of tune with her people. We're not in these states to balance it out. So the only people in the argument of extremists, and that's the downward spiral. So by not competing, by not seeing as a battle for democracy, we've allowed ourselves to think there's no damage by not competing in 50 states. In the meantime, we're shocked when they've all become these hellholes of extremism. We have to get back into these states and start to make some noise. Again, not because you're going to win them all the next year, but once you have a long game mindset, you see the deep damage done by not being there and the long-term hope if you are there. Number three, same story within states. I believe that, yes, we have to, and, and there's some wonderful people doing things here, States Project being perhaps my favorite. Um, we got to fo focus on the state houses of states, win them back when we can, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and others, but also have the same attitude about running across states that we need to have across the country. Because most of the extreme is, is being run through rural districts where too often we're not even running. And we can win swing areas and we can win the U.S. Senate, but the extremism that led to Dobbs will never end unless we start getting into these places and challenging the extremists in their own reelections. That's the only way they'll slow down. And, you know, here I go through this in, in the new book, Saving Democracy. 
we have a crisis, not just of gerrymandering, but of uncontested races outright. Do you know that the authors of the, of the bill that led to Dobbs in Mississippi and that terrible Texas abortion ban that led to that whole crazy lawsuit mechanism and the Ohio ban that led to that 10-year-old rape victim going to Indiana, none of them faced an opponent in the next election? Even when, even when those laws are unpopular in their own states, probably in their own districts when they have no exceptions, we're not even running against them. Of course, they're going to keep being extremists. The only thing they worry about is a primary, and no one's even knocking on a door in October to explain, did you know that nice neighbor from the parade is a total extremist that sent that 10-year-old victim to Indiana? Oh, you didn't know that? Ask him about it the next time you talk to him. That begins to bring accountability to systems that have none. And also, by the way, when you run everywhere, you force them to play defense everywhere, you actually help your swing level candidates do better. That's why in our state and others, the states that are running everywhere seem to do better overall than the states that leave dozens of districts empty. Number four, I won't go much longer on this. It's much bigger than Trump. Hopefully that's obvious at this point. If Donald Trump were locked up tomorrow, they'd still gerrymander. They'd still suppress the vote. They'd still be passing these extreme bills. This began after Obama won. Same pattern of our whole history, a backlash when a diverse electorate gets its way. This began for Obama won. Most of the key moments of this uh, that, that, that I write about came before Donald Trump ever decided to run. And it's accelerated ever since. Now, he threw fuel in the fire. He's brought out the worst in people. He would be a disaster and scary if he got reelected. So it's, we have to beat him. But we also have to stop making it only about Trump, because I, I worry when we do that, that we are giving cover to a whole lot of Republicans who don't feel or sound like Donald Trump, but are attacking democracy in all the ways I've described, and in many cases, more effectively and more brutally than Trump ever did. In Ohio, our Secretary of State, who, you, who doesn't act like Trump, he's done more damage to our democracy than Trump ever did in the specific ways that he's gerrymandered, he's suppressed. He's lied, et cetera. He's the one who pushed issue one. But when we make it only about Trump, we actually, uh, what happened in 20? A whole lot of people voted for Joe Biden, Republicans to the rest of the way, because we said it was only about Donald Trump. We have to broaden it. And this is why I love the big tent mantra. It's, it's a broader discussion. Are you for democracy or not? And if you're a Republican who's a, who agrees to support democracy, welcome aboard. Let's work together. But if you're someone who's real nice and polite, but when push comes to shove, you're always against democracy. I don't care that you didn't endorse Trump. You're not for democracy. We don't want you in office. That has to be our frame. And the last thing I'll say is, um, I want to share a couple other slides from the new book for in a second. But um, once you realize two things, that we're a battle for democracy itself, but also that the battle is not in a few swing states. It's not just the the jury trial and Mar around Mar-a-Lago that we're going to have, or probably won't even have before the election, that those are not the central point of the battle of democracy. The front line of the battle of democracy is everywhere at state level. And my worry about the false narrative, the two battle narrative, is that most Americans watching Rachel Maddow at night literally think, well, I'm sad that democracy is declining, but since I don't live in Pennsylvania, outside of sending a few checks to a few Senate candidates, I can't do anything about it anyway. And the tragedy of that is they're actually, the battle is in all those uncontested races in Oklahoma or all those suppressed voters in Cleveland. And the truth is wherever you are, or that local school board that may go, you know, book banning if we don't do something about it. And if we don't start to say to people, 
No, you, the battle is where you are in your state or New York, not to, not to be negative, but New York having too low a turnout because we didn't say New York was important in 22. That costs us the, uh, cost the, the house. So the point is, we once you lift the veil and see the battle for democracy is everywhere, I hope it not it empowers people to see, my God, there's so much I could be doing that I never thought I could do. And that's what the entire second book walks through, the ways that people can help make sure we run everywhere, the ways that they can use their personal footprint to engage voters everywhere, the way they can challenge crazy state houses through advocacy. I walk through all that in the second book, very specifically best practices. But I want to share one other thing, if I could, before we go to questions. And that is, um, where is it? A couple slides that I, I actually hopefully make the point well. When I say that they are, this is the, the soccer analogy. When I say they're always on offense and we're often not on defense, their offense are these state houses. That's the, that's the front line of their, of their offense in soccer. Wisconsin, Ohio, Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, just kicking the ball as hard as they can at the goal. And as I'll show you in a second, in too many of these states, we're not even kick blocking the shot. And when we lose, like in Dobbs, in Miss, that was the Mississippi shot right in the middle. We don't demand to know who voted for that crazy bill in Mississippi and how do we call them out and hold them accountable. We simply say we need more U.S. senators. That'll get the job done. That's literally like demanding a better goalie in this, on this soccer field as if that's going to solve the problem. That's not going to solve the problem. Why do I say we're not, this is maybe the most shocking statistic from the second book. These are the, these are the uncontested races in America in 22 and 21 if they have an odd year election. It's a crisis. They are largely running their extremist agenda through these seats. And we largely don't even run. No wonder, again, 50% of the Tennessee Republican uh, caucus that voted up to Justin's uncontested. More than 60% where I was in Oklahoma not long ago. Ohio's at 19%. I've always been frustrated by that. I got the number down to zero in 18 when we picked up six seats. 19% is actually one of the lowest. When you when you do the when you do the math, fifty percent almost of the um, Missouri that they are running their entire agenda through these districts and they pass these horrible bills. We get all upset about it. We hope to win in court, but never do the individual politicians doing any of this failing facing accountability. And their only incentive is to do more of it. This is what we got to do: block the shots, get into these places, run. That sounds easier said than done. I know everyone hears that and thinks, "What about money?" We need to have a little bit of a broader mindset about where we, how we spend dollars. We need to have in our mindset a democracy political budget, not just a, the U.S. Senate candidate called me, so I give to them, but mindset. And so I, I go through this. You know, let's look, let's think a hypothetical sort of Amy McGrath fundraise. You could take a percentage of how much she fundraised, and I don't fault her for fundraising. I mean, everyone a candidate supposed to fundraise, and she got people fired up. Good for her. But we need to have a broader conversation. What's good for democracy? Taking some of that money and putting it all those state house races that are otherwise uncontested or underfunded, and we can do that. There are ways to do it. I go through specifics in the book, uh, but until we have that kind of shift, we can keep winning some some battles at that federal level and keep losing that broader battle. The last thing I'll say as I go through this in the book, I really I, I, I try and get every reader to think this way. Once you see that you're on the front line of democracy, my hope is people see, man, there's so much more they can do. If they take their footprint 
and use it fully for democracy. I just give examples in the book. Sherrod Brown convincing McDonald's near Secretary of State to use its trays to have every every tray had a piece of paper on about you could register to vote. The scale of the attack on democracy is enormous. It's billions, it's government funded. We need to figure out how to scale up our pro-democracy effort. Right now, it's too volunteer, it's too part-time. And the, I think the best way, the, the single best way, is if we convince people to start using their full footprint, nonprofits using their full footprint, corporations that believe in democracy, Disney fighting back for the way they are, for example. What if Disney in every single movie had, or, or, or when you entered the park, registered every single person who entered? That would, that would be lifting democracy. I go through all the ways that we could scale up our battle for democracy. And, and with that, I'll, I'll just stop by saying, I, I wrote this book frantically. I know some of the parts of the, the book are sort of, both of them are sobering, but I actually write this optimistically. That there, if you, if you heard me at the beginning, by the way, none of us would be on these calls if we weren't optimistic that we could overcome this. We would have already quit. But if you heard me at the beginning that their extremism their ex yes, uh, I'll go to questions in a second, but that's very good questions. Um, their extremism has been hidden intentionally for too long. It's not hidden anymore after Dobbs, is it? It's not hidden with Tommy Tuberville. It's not hidden with Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's the face of Congress. It will not be hidden when Trump and DeSantis are a meltdown primary. Who can be more extreme? And one of the reasons 22 was so countercyclical, and we didn't just win some federal races, but we won Pennsylvania and Michigan, and not a single election denier running for Secretary of State won in a swing state, was because their extremism is exposed, and the American people are reeling back when they see it for what it is. And the other reason I'm optimistic is we don't have to start from scratch. And, and Jess and I and some of the others are on these calls enough to know this. There is a grassroots infrastructure building that does support running everywhere and does support democracy everywhere. And it's the reason, and there's a grassroots excitement when they see a democracy race, they gravitate. And that's why we won Kansas in August. That's why we won Secretary of State races in November. That's why we won the Wisconsin race in April. And that's why we're gonna win Ohio in August. There's a winning streak building for democracy because they're too extreme and we've got some infrastructure building that we need to scale up. It's not where it needs to be. It's not the DSEC or the DCCC yet, but it's building. If we scale it up at the moment where their extremism is blatantly obvious and we run the contrast of that extremism in 23, 23, 24, not just Biden, Trump, but all the way through all those state houses and school board races, I think we can put together a heck of a winning streak for democracy, which is one reason why I wrote the book as fast as I could. If everyone starts to play a role and see this, I think we actually can make a hell of a comeback, even though things feel pretty uh, bleak in many ways. So with that, I will stop talking, open up to questions, and I'll be on as long as people have questions. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, David. That was fabulous. We have a lot of questions. And I want to start out with one um, that Heidi Fisk had put in the chat just now, and which is what chance is there of persuading the DNC, DSCC, DCCC, et cetera, to use their resources in the ways you're suggesting? It's a big mindset change. Um, oh. How can we bring that about? And I'd like you to also address, in your book, you talk a lot about grassroots organizations without, with all the money going directly to the candidates instead of a lot of it getting siphoned off to others. And yeah. whether it even makes sense to go through the the D, et cetera. <laughs> oh, it's, I, these are all such good questions. I want to just run through them all. But 
Um, and the, the DCCC and the DSCC are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, they give to federal candidates. I wish they had a little bit of a broader playing. It's easy to say this. Um, you know, I didn't like that they gave up on Tim Ryan, who ended up losing by six points when the governor candidate lost by 26. I actually think uh, he may it, may, it may have been real close. I don't want to say he would have won, but the turnout was so bleak because there wasn't that federal, you know, supported infrastructure to get turnout up. So my, my attitude is the DNC should have that broader frame. And I, I've been friends with Jamie Harrison for a long time. Um, and Tom Perez and he both did, did more with the DNC than previously to do this. But I think to make the DNC do more, it's going to have to come from the very top. Big donors, Joe Biden. Kamala Harris called me, by the way, after a morning Joe performance. And we, we knew each other from Ohio. And I, I, I need to get the book in our hand because we need the people at the top saying to Jamie Harrison, we give you approval to start spending money beyond the DSCC and the DCCC. And, and beyond our campaigns, because we see it going back to one question. We don't want Joe Biden running for Arizona and Georgia with 40 empty statehouse districts. That means he has to do all the lifting and for millions of people rather than having an auxiliary field campaign of a local retired teacher, or firefighter knocking on every door in that district saying, don't believe what you see on Fox News. I'm the Democrat. I've been your firefighter for 22 years. Vote for me and Joe Biden. By the way, he's the reason you got infrastructure here, not your Republican governor is taking credit. When we don't run in these places, we don't even have that conversation. So we need to have all officials at all levels and dollar people start saying to people, we expect you to do more to run everywhere. And, and Jamie was the head of, Jamie's a good friend. He was the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. He gets all this. He was dealing with all this. But he's, you know, he's part of a much broader interest, the, the uh, ecosystem and that broader ecosystem from large givers to to, um, um, you know, Joe Biden himself to to Nancy Pelosi, who, by the way, chaired the California party and, and would get some of this need to all say we understand we are better off if some of the money goes or more of the money goes to the um, the DLCC or. We love the state's project. So let's tell some of our donors that's one of the key ways we're going to win Arizona is if we're fully funding uh, people running for the Arizona State House while Joe Biden and the Senate candidate are trying to win as well. And so I think one of the, not to get too into the economics of this, one of the problems right now is I think you also have a whole lot of consultants who basically see the money to be made is in these federal races. And so I think we have a demand problem that the grassroots level and the larger donors need to start saying, we want to put our money into other places. And my hope is that gets some of the more creative people who are the professionals in this business thinking, okay, if many more people are willing to join states project giving circles, and so there's more money flowing to states at that level, maybe we'll start to think more creative about how to win these places and not only worry about how to get, you know, on the John Fetterman campaign. Um, so I think it's a long conversation, but a lot of it is not telling the DSCC not to invest in Senate races. That's what they're, it's going to take a grassroots infrastructure that is building and that delivered incredible results. I mean, DAS, the, the Secretary of State Organization, and uh, DLCC and States Project delivered big time in 22. And so now we need to say, thank you. How can we make you much, much bigger in 23 and 24? and other groups as well. In addition to the state's project, which is terrific and the giving circles are so critical, are there other groups you wanna highlight? 
here? Yeah, I go through this at length in my book. I mean, there's a, I won't, I'll spare you with a slide, but we need to have an infrastructure that values running everywhere. And we don't have that. You wouldn't have that chart of all those uncontested races if we had an infrastructure that said to people in the country, we actually want you to run. Right now, we, our infrastructure says, we want you to largely run in federal seats in swing areas. And we actually accept as a cost of business, not running anywhere else. And so I have this little graphic in the book of, we need to build that infrastructure, the values running everywhere. And what does that infrastructure look like? Recruiting. And by the way, run for something is doing that very well. Staffing. Uh, Sue, at your event, I mentioned this group called Arena, which literally is training staff to help candidates run everywhere and often will pay to embed staff in those campaigns. So that exists. We need funding. And that's where Stage Project and other, they, they bring a lot of assistance as well. They exist. Or this thing I've started in Ohio called Blue Ohio that we're trying to start elsewhere where we help even the hardest races. And so if you look at all the pieces of infrastructure that we need, the truth is a lot of it is there. Uh, sister district is another great one. It's a slightly different model than, than um, States Project. It's less about groups and more about individuals signing up to help. But there's a lot of infrastructure there. I go through it in great detail in the book. I even give uh, websites uh, of people to look up. Um, and uh, by the way, there's also a lot of good advocacy groups. I know someone on the call here tonight is from the Virginia Friday Power Lunch. Like, there's some incredible groups who are bringing the noise about state houses and state level politics. So my bottom line is, this is why I'm optimistic. A lot of this exists. I name drop it all in this book. We need to scale it up. We just need to scale it up. It can't be a side thing. For the Koch brothers, state houses aren't some side project. That's the core of everything for them. And we need to grab these organizations and no longer treat them as sort of the JV squad of our battle and say, you know, whether it's run for something or stage project, they're as important as the big federal ones when it comes to democracy itself. So they're there. They've shown some success. We just got to scale them up and get it more in the mainstream of, every, of the way we all think. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris should be thinking about these groups as much as those like you on this call know about them. So what are we doing to get people to run in these unopposed races? Um, not nearly enough. Um, what we, can we, literally, we literally treat people running in tough districts like we don't care that they're doing it. People will say, and I'm sure you've all heard this or may even think it sometimes, because when you think about it as a federal map, when, once you have that narrative, it's only about the next federal cycle swing districts, then your mindset is, well, it doesn't matter if we run and we, we don't run in some red district in, in Oklahoma. How is that going to affect our federal wins? But once you realize, no, no, the, the fact, the reason we're losing the battle long term is because everything's going through those very districts. Um, you realize the damage being done by all those races, but we need to shift our infrastructure uh, to show those candidates how you them running. And it starts with phone calls. We, you, you, we all get phone calls, right? Now, this is easier said than done, but we got to do it. And we'll, well, hey, what are your chances? Well, I, I'm in a really bad district. And normally we're all figuring out how to get off the phone, right? Well, they're in a bad district. They can't win. The answer should be, wait, you're running in a district against the author of the Mississippi abortion ban or support of it? who's not had an opponent in two terms, thank you. You are a public servant. You are a patriot. You, your public service began the day you started running. How can I help? You're not going to break your budget for them, but they need to feel that, that running actually is valued. 
And so whether it's, and then, and then the organizations that can help them like the Blue Ohio's and the Run for Somethings, they need to be surrounded from the moment they run with, the, with an ecosystem that says, my God, it's great you're running. And, and what, what do we have now? We have a system where from the moment after they're recruited, if they're recruited at all, the moment it gets to matter, June or July, that's when they realize there's no one helping them at all, except for family and a few friends. And for six months, they feel like what they're doing, although it's painful for them, no one cares. And when they're done, they will never run again. And if anyone they know says, hey, you ran for that office, should I run? They will say, hell no, nobody cares. I've had these conversations too many times. And we got to take that entire experience and flip it on its head. So they will say, you know, I didn't win. But man, after 20,000 door knocks, it was amazing how many people were outraged by, by what, the, what the incumbent did. And the volunteers in my parade group were awesome. And the day after, people said, when are we going to do that again? That was awesome. We've never challenged that guy before. We need to just flip it. And we need to build it. In, and I'm, I'm doing this sort of anecdotally. We need an infrastructure that flips it. And, and there, there actually are organizations doing that now. And again, we got to scale them up. So there's a lot of questions that we've gotten from people who want to know what's the best thing, what are the most effective ways in which they can help spread your message or have it implemented. And that's a question to you, but I would also say you got to read the book and fill out the little footprint and act on it. Yeah, I, well, let me, let, oh, I showed you the footprint already. Yeah, if you haven't read the book yet, you're going to think I'm a nerdy guy because at the end of every chapter, I'm literally saying, I want you to do this so much that I've given you a worksheet to fill out. <laughs> and here's a footprint. Do it. I mean, I'm literally, I'm, it's probably annoying. I'm so much like, okay, here's the end of this chapter. Please do the assignment. And, and you'll like this at my uh, website. This is, by the way, if you're part of any group, and Jess, I would love to figure out how to do this together. If you're part of any group, I have a website. Oops, that's not what I meant to put out there. I have a website I created where I literally have a PDF of the footprint. And what I would, what I want to do in person, if you go to the website, you'll see there's a lot of the, a lot of the book is on the website. You can go and print out your own footprint and fill it out at beyond the book. And I would love to pass that out at meetings and say, everyone fill this out because the minute you fill it out, you will see there's so much more you could be doing. You know, I give examples. I go through them on the call. And a lot of you, this will be true. And it's especially in some of these states that are truly under the gun, like Ohio. Hey, if you're on the board of a homeless shelter, is that homeless shelter registering voters that walk through the door? They should be. Those are the very people being purged by our sector of state. At one meet, this is a great example of, again, I agree. Read the book. Go to the website. Uh, if we can, I'll put up a, a, the link to my Substack because I do this a lot in my newsletter. Here's an example of being a little bit leaning in that makes a difference. I was at a fundraiser. Some of you know Greg Landsman, my good friend, who's the who's the new congressman from Cincinnati. I was at a fundraiser for him. It was like a briefing. He wasn't even raising money, but he had like 40 people from Cincinnati in the room. And at one point, and I only would do this because we know each other so well, someone asked about registering all the purge voters. And I said, and Greg said, oh, the Democratic Party's going to do a lot of that. And I literally raised my hand because I was just finishing the book saying, hey, Greg, can I say something? The Democratic Party will do some of that, but actually they won't do it that well because normally they're going after the repetitive voters. I said, the people in this room 
will actually could play a bigger role in finding those purge voters than anybody. So I said to the group, what I was about to say to you guys, are any of you on the board of the, of the homeless shelter? Uh, it's called the drop-in center. How about the free store? Are any of you involved in the health clinics of Cincinnati, which serve tens of thousands of people every year? Because uh, every one of those institutions could be registering every single voter who comes to the door and could actually be showing them how to get the new voter ID. Food banks are perfect. The voter ID law. At the end of that meeting, someone come, came up to me and he said to me, and I, I remember this, I knew him well. He said, David, I chaired the, 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 uh, the Cincinnati uh, Public Health uh, Commission three years ago. I'm the guy who brought in the new medical health director who runs all those clinics. I'm going to talk to him when I'm done with this. Two weeks later, I was on a Zoom call with that person. And they are now working with vote riders and others to try and incorporate into their process of intake and serving all those, those folks who come through their doors, poor, largely African-American, to make sure that as they're treating them for health issues, they're getting them registered. So even me just waving my hand at some fancy fundraiser could mean that all of a sudden thousands of people are being engaged in a way they're not. And so I would just say, once you read it, once you think about your footprint, take that footprint and figure out whether it's, and this, the, the collective sum of big tent, if you all took this footprint and said, we're not only gonna give money, we're not only gonna do all the others you do, we're gonna figure out every organization, business, fraternal or, or sorority organization, school, we're gonna took it all of it and we're gonna use it all to lift democracy. The hundred and plus something people on this call could be doing massive things to lift democracy. And one little thing, going back to this food bank and homeless shelter, the reason like, I think the better engagement of voters is through these community groups and through these footprints than the typical Democratic Party thing. And I say this as a former chair, it's not to be critical. We basically, most of the Democratic and campaign efforts to deal with voters are basically talking to the repeat voters that show up every year because that's the most cost-effective thing to do, right? Once we use that as our target, we are accepting the voter suppression from the right as the new electorate. And we are leaving out this group of people in the top right of that second of that second chart, we don't talk to them because they they're knocked out of democracy. And I don't I have the the other slide in the in the book, the homeless shelter, the food bank, those health clinics, they're directly talking to the very people that most of the democratic operation isn't talking to. So not only is there a greater scale when we incorporate pro democracy into all the other things we do. We're actually more effectively targeting the very people that have been removed from democracy in many of these states. We also got a lot of questions about messaging and a lot of what I gathered from your book is 90% is showing up and being there. Do, how do you, do you have some special thoughts on messaging? I do. Um, don't talk about it with anything I've talked about tonight if you're running because it's all 30,000 foot. The reason we succeeded in 2022 wasn't just because we talked about democracy at 30,000 foot level, it's because we connected it to Dobbs. And the connection in those sector state races wasn't just they're trying to steal your vote, it's a lot of the ads were, and they also want to get rid of this right you've had for a long time. In other places, I go through this in the book and I have a long chapter on messaging. If you listen to what I said, the incentives of these state houses are so screwed up, they are taking public goods, and giving them the private. And inevitably, 
resulting from that MO. And that's the MO. I can tell you in Ohio, it's all about what they can fork over to big energy companies, to for-profit charter school scams, for-profit ones. There's some fine nonprofit charters out there if they have accountability, but we're talking about for-profit scams. And what we are seeing is a downward spiral in outcomes. Like in Texas, the energy grid collapsing, so people freeze to death. In Ohio, we were ranked fifth in public schools. Now we're in the mid-20s. And so the other thing I say on messaging is run on the terrible outcomes that are an inevitable consequence of their broken, corrupted state houses. When I say corruption, bribe, there's bribery in some states, but it's a broader corruption of public service that is literally leading to dying towns, no infrastructure, dying schools. In rural Ohio, there's no choice if you get a voucher. There's no other school. If, you're, if my wife's Little school in Adams County, Ohio disappeared. The center of that community is gone. That's what you run on. Find the consequences of their broken systems that affect everyday people and that, frankly, aren't at all partisan. Imagine, and I say this with two kids, imagine the, 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 the single mom or the struggling family that's told in Missouri that they only have four days of school a week because they so defunded the schools. That's not only bad for their kids' education, that's a family crisis. What the hell do we do with Johnny on Fridays? How do we even pay for that? So I would say identify, and they will be there, the, the indefensible public outcomes, the East Palestine train derailment, what, all these things, and show them. That's not, and you, you don't do this, to, as you said, this doesn't happen if you don't run. If we don't run, they blame all of it on some caravan from Mexico or on Nancy Pelosi, and no one counters it, so it works. If we're running in that school district, you have a candidate saying that our school isn't falling apart because of some Mexican caravan that didn't exist. It's because this guy voted against our schools for the last six years of that state house. So there's a lot of really potent material. One little anecdote on this. In the last four months, Republicans in rural Georgia and rural Texas sided with Democrats to stop big voucherization giveaways from, to private from public schools. Why did they do it? Because they understand that in their districts, their public schools would fall apart and they would not be able to defend that. So there's a lot of really good material that you translate the democracy talk into the real life consequences of the decline of democracy, whether it's abortion or, or, or that 10 year old rape victim, or book banning, which is really unpopular, or outcomes that they cannot defend. And, and the one other one is we often, this, we get some bad advice out there. Sometimes we run around like we're the fringe people because they've made us think that way. Oftentimes you'll see a candidate be told, oh, after Dobbs, this happened in some states. Okay, we've talked about Dobbs enough. It's time to get back to the real issues. When they are out on a very thin thing of ice with extremism, don't back off. Take it to its logical extreme. And the best example of that is Mehmet Oz. Not, is it, yeah, Mehmet Oz. Again, abortion comes down to a doctor, a woman, and the local elected official. He, artic he articulated their exact position. It not only cost him the race, it restarted the debate across the country. So when they're being extremists, don't duck away from it like it's hot topic you should avoid. Run it to its most logical extreme because they often are standing with about 10% of Americans. As Sue announced at the beginning, we're, we Big Tent is hosting the Fairness Project uh, yeah. next Tuesday, and I understand you work with them, and I was wondering if you had 
Yeah, I mean, I hope, please go to the, please go to that. I, it, as I've tried to explain in every way I can, this is massive for Ohio. This is, this, this is the equivalent of the August election in Kansas and the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin for our state. But like the, those races, this is also a national battle. They, the Koch brothers and Alec did not need to read my first book. They know that the state house laboratories of autocracy is how they are winning. And they are in, they are in search all the time for any offices or any institutions that are a threat to their unaccountable power in state houses. Moore v. Harper was about trying to knock out Supreme Courts from being state Supreme Courts from being able to hold them accountable. In Georgia, they're trying to take power away from local prosecutors because they don't want to be held accountable. In Iowa, they're trying to take away power from the state auditor, who's a Democrat, from holding them accountable. When Cooper won North Carolina, they stripped him of power. Well, in Ohio and Arkansas and Kansas, what's the threat to power that's left? Maybe the only one that citizens can go to the ballot and demand change directly through the Constitution. And this is what Teddy Roosevelt was talking about in that speech I, I referred to. And so this is not just about Ohio. This, this is, they are scared of Kansas happening everywhere. And if they can ratchet up the thresholds and make it harder to gather petitions, which this is a many things they're doing, if they can do that, they get rid of one of the last sources of a check and balance in states they've otherwise hijacked. And this is my promise. They always are learning from their success. That's, what, that's why I call them laboratory autocracy. If this passes in Ohio, it's coming everywhere they can do it because this is all part of the same national strategy. Lock in state houses and lock everyone else out from being able to impact in the state houses. And, and the bottom line is, this is this, it's all in the line for Ohio here. It will save abortion access if we win this, but it will help us do a redistricting initiative in 14, in 24 if we win this. But if it fails here, if we fail here, other states will do it. The Fairness Project, is doing a hell of a job. I was on some calls the last couple of days. They, Hannah Ledford, her team, really impressive, uh, very professional, raising good money. My goal here with them leading the way, and I'm on their calls most weeks, um, I want to beat this thing so badly. And I think we can. We've got more resources right now. They, they have, knock on wood. This has become polarizing on their side. It's kind of become embarrassing to be part of it. So my hope is that we'll freeze up some of their money. I want, with your help and with the Fairness Project leading the way, I want this thing to be beaten so badly that they decide, and they decide this sometimes, they would do it if it would work, but it's not working. So stop doing it. There's a billionaire from Illinois funding all this thing. Out-of-state billionaire, guy funded January 6th stuff. I want him to conclude this was the biggest waste of his money of all time. The people of Ohio saw through it. They rejected it. So it's not worth doing in Arkansas or Missouri or anywhere else because it's a losing strategy. What people in America want to give away power that they have to corrupt politicians? Most people don't want to do that. I don't care what party you are. That's what they're trying to convince Ohioans to do. So bottom line, go to that call and, and know going in and that I have, any, I have no reason to say this, but it's what I believe. The Fairness Project has really set us up well for I think a, a what could be if we if we have a good final month, a, a, a victory that really keeps that overall democracy winning streak going and hopefully puts an end to this type of manipulation of a state's constitution by interests from around the country. A lot of open questions and there will be, and we hope you'll come back to Big Tent New York Buddy Group 
Um, Absolutely. Again, and thank you so much. And thanks thank to everyone. Thank you. Uh, I, what you all do individually and collectively is, is incredible. I, I, you've helped so many people from both these groups and so many, so many organizations. So I'm honored to be with you.